Um, this is our third Sunday back from sabbatical, but really today I feel like I'm truly getting back in the saddle, truly getting back in the groove as we're stepping back into our series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up right where we left off in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. So go ahead and turn there if you would. We left off in the end of June in that passage of Scripture. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture, a very well-known passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's also one of those texts that just sort of steps on your toes. So I hope you've got your steel-toed boots on this morning. Because I know how convicting it was for me this week as I prepared this passage. As you're turning there, I want to remind you a little bit about this series and the sermon. Uh, as I already said, this is called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's the title of the series. And we are doing a verse-by-verse walk through the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ using all four Gospels meaning we are harmonizing the Gospels as we walk chronologically through them. So this journey has brought us to this famous Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying now for a few months. Matter of fact, I went back and looked. Uh, We started in the Sermon on the Mount December 22nd of 2013. So I don't think, I think we're going to hit a year in the Sermon on the Mount. I really do. So it will have taken us a year to get through just that portion of of the series. But, uh, But it's been good. It didn't feel like it's been nine months that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's been, it's been good just to walk through this great sermon of our Lord's. A quick reminder of the theme and the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon was delivered by Jesus to his disciples. As we've said in the past, this is a sermon by King Jesus for kingdom citizens about kingdom living. The kingdom citizens should look differently than the citizens of this world. And with that in mind, the sermon breaks down into to seven parts and I gave these to you way back, and I've re-mentioned them a couple of times, but I'm going to mention them today since we're getting back into the series. Um, first of all, the traits that distinguish the kingdom citizens. That's the, that's the first thing that we looked at, and that was the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Then there's the influence that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus speaks of us being uh, light and salt. Then uh, the third part is the righteousness that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. And this was a larger section in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 48, where Jesus teaches his followers what it means to, or how they relate to the law. He, he teaches them that he is the fulfillment of the law, but that now that he is the fulfillment of the law, if we are followers of his, we are now keepers of the law in a way that is much greater than even those who tried to keep the law prior. Then we looked at the practice that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. That's Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, where Jesus challenged his disciples not to practice their righteousness in such a way that they'll draw attention to themselves. And within that section is the Lord's Prayer, which was the very last thing that we studied. And so today we come to a new section in the Sermon on the Mount, the treasure that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. And this section is verses 19, right here, all the way to the end of chapter 6, verse 34. So we're going to just look at the first half of this section today. But this is a new segment of the Sermon on the Mount. Then we're going to look, Lord willing, in the coming weeks to the relationships that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. That's Matthew 7, verses 1 through 14. And finally, the authenticity that distinguishes the citizens of the kingdom. That's Matthew 7, verse 15 through the very end of that chapter. So with that recap, I want us to jump into today's text Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. So please stand, if you would, uh, as we read this 
passage of Scripture, we stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We believe it is God's infallible and errant Word. Um, that's why we quote Scriptures like the one that was our memory verse for this week. And that's why we have a class like I have at the beginning, the, the Bible study I have before this, where we're studying the sufficiency of God's Word. So this is the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, be glorified in the sermon today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up our minds to understand this text, open up my mouth to speak it rightly. And Jesus, we pray that we would see you as our all-sufficient treasure by the time we're done with this message today. So, Lord, be glorified in all that we do and all that we say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Of course, you guys know, I think everyone here knows that I was away on sabbatical. My whole family was away on sabbatical this summer. And it was an interesting summer just to kind of pay attention to the headlines. And there were lots of scary things happening this summer from uh, Israel and uh, going to battle with Hamas to... Um, the the whole thing with ISIS and all that stuff sort of just stir, being stirred up this summer and, and other things. The headlines seem just sort of scary this summer. Perhaps none were more scary than the whole Ebola thing, right? This 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 Ebola virus is just continuing even now to, to spread through Africa. It seems to be unstoppable. There's not enough doctors and nurses to, to stop it. And even the doctors and nurses that go there are getting sick themselves. And it's just been sort of a, a scary story to, to follow this summer. You think about this Ebola, this, this virus, and, and, uh, and how it's, it's passed on. And even after you get it, 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 it never is fully out of your body. You may be be cured, but, but the virus, even though it's been dealt with, it's still there. And so people's blood, matter of fact, I think the guy who came here to Emory, they'd actually been drawing his blood to make a serum to, to actually treat other Ebola patients. And it's pretty amazing that they can, they can do that. But it's kind of scary to think about this virus that's, that seems to be unstoppable. As I thought about this passage today, I thought about another deadly virus. It's not caught. We're all born with it. Uh, but it seems to flourish in certain places more, um, more so than it does in other places in the world. I think the virus is materialism. The virus of materialism is just as deadly, it's more deadly, than Ebola. And even after we're cured of it in the sense that 
Our sins have been forgiven. We've become a believer in Christ. And, and that sin of materialism has been dealt with. Well, that virus still remains in our system. If there's anything that's infected the, the American church, perhaps more than anything else, it's the, the virus of materialism. It's reflected in how we handle our material resources. All of us here, every single person in this room, regardless of your income and where you fit on the American socioeconomic scale, every single person in this room is in the top 10% of earners on the globe. You're in the top 10% of earners in this world. And beyond that, you are part of the wealthiest nation in the history of mankind by far. Take all the other empires that have, that have existed in, this, in the history of this world. The Roman Empire. Take the Greeks. Mesopotamia. Whoever it is. The wealth that this empire, this America, now possesses far outstrips any wealth of any nation or any empire in history. This message applies to each and every one of us in this room. And so like that isolation room at Emory where they brought those guys over and stuck them in the isolation room and, and began to treat them, this next 45 minutes to 50 minutes is our isolation room. And the medicine is the scriptures. I want us to think about it that way as we deal with this virus of materialism that has infected not just some people in this room here, everyone. Everyone. Because of our culture and because we are all convicted to one degree or another regarding our material resources, this, my friends, is not a popular topic for preachers to preach on. But it's one of Jesus' favorite things to preach on. One of Jesus' favorite things to preach on was material possessions, how we handle our material possessions. You've probably heard it before that Jesus preaches on money or on material possessions more than anything else, more than heaven and hell combined. And that's true. 15% of all the words we have recorded in the Gospels from the lips of Jesus pertain to, in one way or another, some more directly than others, but in one way or another pertain to our material possessions. So what can we conclude from that statistic? Three things I think we can c conclude from that statistic. Number one, this topic that we're going to discuss today is very important to Jesus, and thus it should be to us as well. Number two, there is something about money. Why does Jesus hit it so hard? There is something about money, about material possessions, that exposes the state of a person's heart. And number three... The way we view, handle, and talk about money has eternal consequences for us and for others. I think we'd be foolish to avoid what Jesus so frequently talks about. Now there are some, granted, there are some churches and some preachers who abuse the topic of money and in doing so try to fleece their members. The health, wealth, prosperity, word of faith churches notoriously do this, but but I don't want to let their abuses cause us to skip over or ignore what Jesus so clearly says. So let's look at Jesus' words this morning. And first, let us consider the context. Today's text, verses 19 through 24, as I've already mentioned to you, are part of a larger segment of this Sermon on the Mount. 
Okay, it continues all the way down to the end of the chapter to verse 34. So there are two sections in this segment. The first section is verses 19 through 24. The second section is verses 25 through 34. And these two sections are obviously related. In this one that we're considering today, Jesus zeroes in on what we value. On what we value. And in the, in the second section, verses 25 through 34, Jesus zeroes in on what we worry about. And those two things are interrelated. They're interrelated because we, what we value is what we worry about. And we worry when what we value is threatened. They're very much interconnected. Now this first section breaks down itself into three parts. Verses 19 through 21, which I've entitled, let me find my clicker here, which I've entitled uh, Two Treasures. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the, there's blanks on your, oh, stay right there. There's blanks on your notes there that say two, two, two. So the first part is two treasures. The second part, verses 22 through 23, will speak of two eyes. And the last part, verse 24, will speak of two masters. So Jesus uses Three different illustrations, two treasures, two eyes, two masters. Now, several commentators that I read simply view these as three different illustrations. And that is true, but I see them as all flowing together as interconnected to the command that Jesus gives us in the very first section, the first segment, which is verses 19 through 20. So let's look at this first one, the two treasures. Here we find, in this first one, verses 19 through 20, we find the only imperative... In this whole first section of Scripture. So verses 19 through 24 has only one command in it. It's actually one command spoken two different ways. One negative, one positive. So let's start in verse 19. Here it is. Here's the command that Jesus is giving. This is an imperative. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, and this is part of the same imperative. It's just the other flip side of the coin. But... Lay up for yourselves, that's a command, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The first thing I want us to see is really simple. Okay, that Jesus commands us to treasure the right treasure. Now that may sound kind of weird to say it that way and you'll see why I worded it that way in a minute. Jesus commands us to treasure The right treasure. Now when Jesus speaks here of treasures on earth, I do think he is primarily speaking about money and material possessions. I say that in the context where in verse 24, Jesus clearly has money in view. But I also believe that we can apply the principle of this passage to other earthly things we may treasure as well. Maybe we treasure our time. Maybe we treasure accolades. Maybe we treasure educational degrees. Maybe we treasure food. Maybe we treasure our family in an inordinate way. Anything that we may put above God could be an earthly treasure that we are seeking instead of God. And all of those things, just like money, are not bad in and of themselves. God does not say that money is bad in and of itself or that any material blessing is bad in and of itself. 1 Timothy 4, 4, specifically speaking about food, says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And we, and, we are, and we are to recognize that it is God is the one who gives us every material blessing we have. 
comes down, according to James 1.17, every good, good, and good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So we can say right up front that this text is not forbidding us from acquiring or even enjoying earthly blessings. This text is not forbidding a person from making money. This text is not forbidding a person from saving money. Well, it says don't store up. I guess I don't need to have a savings account. That's not what this text is saying. Proverbs 6, 6 makes it very clear. Jesus, I mean, the, the Father inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, let me get all that in the right order, tells us to look at ants and consider them and look at how they store up, how hard they work, how hard they store food, and we are to copy them. This text is not forbidding a person from being rich. You know there's rich people in the Bible, don't you? There's Abraham. There's Job. There's Lydia in the New Testament. There are rich people in the Bible. Making lots of money is not wrong. Keeping lots of money for selfish reasons is. Saving money is not wrong. Selfishly hoarding money is. Being rich is not wrong. But failing to be rich toward God is. The question isn't whether or not we have money, but whether or not we treasure money. Do we desire it, love it, devote ourselves to the accumulation of it? What Jesus is forbidding us to do is to selfishly accumulate and foolishly hope in worldly goods above all else for our satisfaction and our security. And that plays into the next section. We're talking about worry, okay? Let me say that again. What Jesus is forbidding us to do is to selfishly accumulate and foolishly hope in worldly goods above all else for our satisfaction and our security. He is forbidding us from treasuring earthly treasures. A matter of fact, the text we can see here, there's a play on words that Jesus is employing here. The word translated in our text here in the ESV, lay up, or in the NIV, or in the, I think the Holman Christian says, store up. The, the, the word translated here in the ESV, lay up, is actually the verbal form of the Greek word later used in this very um, text here for treasure. It's the verbal form of the word treasure. Just like in English. If you tell someone, what does treasure mean? You would ask, well, are you talking about the verb treasure or the noun treasure? And so both the verb and the noun are used here in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20. So literally, these verses read, Do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven. So don't treasure treasure, unless you're treasuring the right treasure. So that's the first point this morning. Jesus commands us to treasure the right treasure. Jesus points out that it is quite foolish to treasure the treasures of earth. Why? Because they're temporal. They're fading away. They're corroding. They're vanishing. They'll all one day be burnt up. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Moths. I hate moths. They're annoying little bugs anyway. But especially when they get into your clothes or something because they create these little bitty holes these little bitty holes, and oh man, there's a new shirt, and there's this tiny little hole. It's frustrating, but it was even more frustrating in Jesus's day because one of the one of the things that people most valued in Jesus's day was a set of good clothes. 
Now we have clothes that we don't even wear for a variety of reasons that don't fit us anymore, or they're out of style, or they're sitting in the back of our closet and we just haven't seen it in a few months. And so we don't understand this. But in Jesus' day, most people just had one set of clothing, maybe two. A rich person had lots of sets of clothing, but not even like we have. So clothes, a set of clothing was very, a very prized possession. So moths were hated creatures. They would destroy what people so highly treasured. And then rust. Now, rust here, the Greek word actually means eaten up. Now, it could refer to metallic treasures corroding. More likely than not, the image conjured up in Jesus' original hearers' minds was that of vermin, like mice or rats eating up supplies of grain. So, so it could refer to rust, something corroding away due to rust, but more than likely it just means something being eaten up. So you store your grain for your family, and you come in the next morning, go out to the storeroom, and, and there's a hole in the side of the sack because some little rat has gotten into it and begun to eat it up. And then he says where thieves break in and steal. The word break in here literally means to dig through. Because in Jesus' day, uh, most of the walls of most people's houses, not all the houses, but most people, the average person's house, was made of mud. And it was not uncommon for a thief to conceal himself outside of someone's home and then dig through the wall when they walked away. When I lived in Abilene, Texas, where the Fowlers are now at, um, came home, came to North Carolina for the summer to, to, to do work and to make some money and do a job. And, and my roommate came with me and we stored all our stuff, which wasn't a lot of stuff, but it was our stuff in a storage unit in some place in Abilene, Texas. And we came back that after the summer was over, only to discover it was all gone. And someone had backed their truck up to the end of a long line of storage buildings and had cut a hole in that first storage building, emptied all those contents out in the truck, and then cut a hole into the next storage building and emptied all those contacts, that content out. And ours was one of those storage buildings that got emptied out and put in a truck. Turned out it, they caught the, there was two ladies who did it. They, they caught the people. But I know what it's like to have someone dig through <laughs> And take your stuff. And there's a thousand other ways that our earthly material possessions can vanish. Stock market crash, the IRS, uh, natural disasters. Okay, uh, I mean, I think it was this summer. I, I'm actually from the Bowling Green, Kentucky area. That's where I grew up as a, as a young child. And so I knew all about the Corvette Museum. But now everybody knows about the Corvette Museum. Because what happened this summer, there, there was all these cars sitting in the Corvette Museum. Priceless Corvettes. And the earth opened up and swallowed all these Corvettes. All those priceless treasures in an instant, gone. And we know that all of these earthly things are fading away. That's why we spend, we spend a small treasure trying to protect them, don't we? I mean, we know these things are fading away, so that's why we, we put Thompson's water seal on the deck to keep it from corroding. We, we put burglar alarms in our homes. We, we, we put out rat poison to get rid of the vermin. We put rust-proof paint on our metallic objects. We, we use insecticides. All this in attempts to preserve what ultimately cannot be preserved. And when we think about it, it's utter foolishness to treasure earthly treasure. It's insanity. It's a bad investment. Instead, we are to make the one true and wise investment, namely treasuring heavily treasures. 
heavenly treasures. Now, if the negative command Jesus is giving us is forbidding us to selfishly accumulate and foolishly hope in worldly goods above all else for our satisfaction and security, well, then the positive command he is telling us is to selflessly accumulate and wisely hope in heavenly goods above all else for our, for our satisfaction and our security. So the question then is, what is this heavenly treasure then that we are told to treasure? The heavenly treasure that we are told to seek? Well, certainly heavenly blessings do consist of a lot of different things like eternal peace and joy and a new heavens and a new earth and never-ending incorruptible blessings that we're going to be able to enjoy unhindered by our sin. But more than anything else, our treasure is a relationship. Our treasure is a person. Our treasure is Christ. The only place we find satisfaction and security for all eternity is in the person of Christ. C.S. Lewis said this, The person who has only Jesus has just as much as the person who has Jesus and everything else. Because if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. If you've been overseas and met a believer, or maybe you've met a believer from another country, you've probably seen the same thing I've seen. That they have a contentment in Christ that puts American Christians to shame. They have a contentment in Christ that puts us to shame. They have 1 Timothy 6, 6, which says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. I've met people who materially have nothing, yet the countenance on their face says that they have everything because they have Christ. Psalm 73 that we read earlier, verse 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you... And me, can we honestly read that psalm this morning? Can we honestly say, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? Nothing. Do we treasure Christ the way we are commanded to? Friend, Jesus is not trying to guilt you into some sort of rote obedience with your money. Well, I guess i got to give some money to God. Well, I guess I shouldn't be materialistic. No. Jesus is aiming not for mere obedience. He's aiming for worship. That's what the rich young ruler didn't get. Jesus didn't want the rich young ruler's law keeping. He wanted his heart. Jesus wanted his worship. He wanted the young man to treasure him above all else. That's why he said, Matthew 19, 21, Sell your pos- what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Let me replace your treasure. He didn't just want his obedience. That's all the rich young people want to do. What can I do to obey you so that I can be in heaven? And Jesus says, you've got a worship problem. Verse 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We treasure what we truly love and we love what we truly treasure. The heart in the Jewish mind was the seat of the whole being. It's the cockpit, if you will, of who we are. As the heart goes, so goes the whole person. As we'll see Jesus emphatically say later, there is no middle ground. And if, you, if, you're, if the treasure is where our heart resides, and if that treasure is a corruptible treasure, a destructible treasure, our heart will be corrupted and destroyed as well. Because our heart is wherever our treasure is. Again, Jesus is not saying that earthly treasures are bad in and of themselves. He is saying that treasuring them is bad. He is not saying that having them is bad, but he is showing us that having them is dangerous. Continuing from the passage I read earlier in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this message today is deadly serious. It's not wrong to have money or to make money or to save money. But friends, especially in our American culture where we are in the top 10% of world earners, it is deadly dangerous. Deadly dangerous. Jesus goes on in that passage in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, so he's speaking to believers here. There are rich believers. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, be, they are to do good, speaking to the rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, here it is, tying it in with what Jesus says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The call here isn't for you to go and get rid of all your earthly possessions and go live in a desert. The call here that Jesus is giving us, that Paul is giving us, that we'll see that James gives us as well. The call here is to leverage every possession that you have, every possession you have, every earthly treasure that you have for kingdom purposes and thereby build up heavenly treasure. The call is for us to put away lavish living and start lavish giving. That's what Jesus is challenging us. Put away the lavish living and start the lavish giving. Which brings us to the next part of today's passage, which is about two eyes. Two eyes. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now at first glance, this little section here may seem a bit confusing or even out of place. But I think we'll see real quickly what Jesus is saying. First of all, the eye is the lamp of the body. Simply means that the eye is what guides the rest of the body. What you're looking at is like our headlights, if you will. Okay, so, so what you're looking at, what your eyes are fixed upon is what you'll drift toward. So Noah's been learning to drive this summer. Another one of the scary things from the summer, right? No, he's done a great job. He just got his license. Okay, yay Noah. But I noticed as I was driving with him, if he didn't keep his eyes in the right spot, 
the car began to drift. Now, over time, he'll learn. He'll be able to, to look around and not, not right now. Keep your eyes on the road. That's because we'll begin to drift towards what we're looking at. Hey, did you see that over there? Next thing we know, we're off the road over there. Because that's how our eyes and our body work. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Whatever our eyes are fixed on, whatever they're focused on, we will drift toward that. Then Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, what does that mean? Well, it literally reads, if your eye is single, or if you are single-eyed, would be the right way to say it. If you are single-eyed, which is how it is in the KJV. What does it mean to be single-eyed? Kids, I put in your notes, does that mean we're supposed to be like pirates? Have a patch on one eye and handle our money like pirates? Arg! No. Okay? But what does it mean? It sounds kind of weird talking about being single-eyed. Well, the word single here is, is a Greek word which at its root means to be without folds. Without, without folds. It was used to refer to something being simple or plain or sincere. And it had come to be used in Jesus' day to refer to something being whole or complete or healthy. Wholeness, completeness, healthiness, or goodness. It's, it's translated as good in the Holman Christian Standard Version. A good, healthy, or sincere eye is what Jesus is saying we must have. Now, some people say this means Jesus is talking about having healthy eyes that are fixed singularly, and then we bring the idea of singular back in, on heavenly treasures and not earthly treasures. And I think that's part of it, but I think there's more to it than just that. To see that, we need to consider the other type of eye. Verse 23 says, but if your eye is bad. Now, literally, that reads, if your eye is evil. If your eye is evil. Now, this was a very common phrase in Judaism. And we even see it used in the, in the, in the um, Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament. What was called the Septuagint. We see it in, in Proverbs 28, verse 22, to refer to stinginess. When, when you said someone had an evil eye, you were saying they were stingy. So, so it's interesting here. Jesus is talking about having a healthy eye that's fixed on the right thing and not having an evil eye, which is referring to being stingy. So what does it mean to have a healthy eye then? Well, I think it means being the opposite of stingy. Being generous. Taken together, I think this means, the second part of this passage simply means this. Jesus shows us that the evidence of hearts that treasure the right treasure is having eyes that lead us to let go of earthly treasures. The evidence that you have have a heart that treasures the right treasure is you have eyes that lead you to let go of your earthly treasures. And when I refer to let go, I'm talking about being generous. I believe Jesus is talking about generosity here. The man who truly has his heart set on heavenly treasures is the man who holds on loosely to earthly treasures. If our eyes are healthy, they fix themselves on the needs of others. Not on the wishes of ourselves. Now, to back up that interpretation of the two eyes, I want to take us to Matthew 20. If you know Matthew 20, um, there, you know that there's a parable in Matthew 20 of the laborers in the vineyard. I'll remind you of that parable. The owner of the vineyard goes out in the morning, he hires workers for a denarius each, and then he goes out and hires more. As the day goes on by, he hires some at the third hour, some at the sixth hour, some at the ninth hour, and then some at the eleventh hour. And he, and he, and he he only told those first ones he was going to pay them a denarius. And at the end of the parable there, he lines up all the workers, and he starts with the ones he had just hired an hour earlier. And he pays them a denarius. 
and starts paying all these guys a denarius. And so now the, the workers that were hired early in the day, they're thinking, oh, yeah, baby, we're going to get it big today because look what he's paying those guys. If he's paying them that, surely he's going to pay us more. Well, you know the story. Okay, they were disappointed that they didn't cash in big because he paid them the same thing he paid everyone else. And they begin to complain. And then we read this in verse 13 of Matthew 20. But he replied to them, friend, am I doing you no wrong? I am sorry, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. If I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, that phrase, begrudge my generosity, literally reads, do you evil eye my generosity? Do you evil eye my generosity? Does your love of money cause you not to appreciate my generosity? Take what's yours and go. And Jesus talks like this all the time about being liberal and generous with our money. Giving our resources to others. It is how we store up treasure in heaven. Luke 12 verse 32 records Jesus saying something very similar to the passage we're looking at today. He says this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You hear that? You're getting the kingdom, friends. And then he goes on to say, sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You got a kingdom. So let go of your earthly treasures. And in doing so, store up heavenly treasures. Jesus talks this way, as I said, all the time. Luke 14, 12. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be, listen to this, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You serve, you give, you be hospitable, you love on people, you meet needs, and don't worry about your bank account. God's taking care of you. You'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. We are called to, to hold on to our earthly treasures very loosely. We are called to let them go. It's not wrong to save, but friends, it is wrong to save it is not wrong to save so long as you are seeking to let go of as much as that you save for God's glory. Which means risky, even scandalous generosity and giving towards kingdom purposes. Oh, I want us to become risky, even scandalous givers in this church. Failure to be generous with our money will lead us down a path of self-deception where we justify our stinginess. That's the self-deception that's pictured here when Jesus says your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If you think you got light, but your light's really just darkness, you're in serious self-deception. You're in serious darkness. You're walking around thinking, wait, I serve God with my money. I give my 10%. I do this. I do this. But in reality, you're storing up treasures for yourself. You're not really being generous with what God has given you. You have deceived yourself into a pattern of religiosity. It's going to leave you dark to the needs of others. Oh, how we need to learn the lesson of Jesus' parable to the rich young fool who, after receiving from God a bountiful crop, decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Now, I think today, if you ask somebody, that sounds like good, good advice. 
good, a good sound business plan. Makes sense. Tear down the old barns, build new ones, build better barns. But in reality, it's self-deception. For the rich fool can't see that what he's doing isn't wise and prudent saving. It's foolish and selfish hoarding. So Jesus, in that parable, says in Luke 12, verses 20 through 21, it says, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But what does it mean to be rich toward God? I mean, that seems kind of strange, being rich toward God. Well, let's let the Scriptures answer the Scriptures. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Let me say that again. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Whoever is generous to the poor is rich toward God. And he, God, will repay him for his deed. When we are rich toward God, we are looking for ways to leverage our resources to love others for God's glory. That's what we're doing when we're being rich toward God. We're saying, okay, God, you have blessed me in ways I can't imagine. Now, how can I use it as much of it as you want me to use? How can I use it all if need be for your glory to love others? Show me, God, show me. Instead of looking for the next great investment, look for the only sound investment. How can I use all of this for your glory? Rich toward God. And what we do when we're rich toward God, when we love others for God's glory, our whole body will be full of light. I can't help but see a connection here with Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Kingdom citizens must not have evil eyes. We must have good eyes set on the needs of others to the glory of God. Then and only then will we find true satisfaction and security. Proverbs fourteen twenty one says, Blessed or happy is he who is generous to the poor. We see that same spirit in the Macedonian churches, don't we? In 2 Corinthians verse 8, I'll pick it up in, I mean, chapter 8, pick it up in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Every pastor's dream is for someone to come up and beg earnestly to get more money. Pastor, please, please. you got to feed your family. No, pastor, I want to get more. That never happens. Except in Macedonia. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves. Listen, what does it mean to be rich toward God? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. If you treasure the right treasure, you'll let go of your earthly treasures. There's no question who the Macedonian believers belonged to. Their generosity gave it away. They belonged wholly to Christ, wholly to their God. And that is what Jesus focuses on in the last part of today's passage. So I am bringing it to a conclusion here. 
The last part is about two masters. We are, I don't know why it says we are warns. It's supposed to say Jesus warns us that the location of our heart and the health of our eyes reveal who we truly belong to. The location of our heart, okay, and the health of our eyes, that will reveal who we really belong to. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is no middle ground on the issue for Jesus. Americans, we're always trying to find the middle ground. We're trying to play politics with God, riding the fence, talking about generosity, when our bank accounts and our lifestyles betray us. John Calvin said, where riches hold dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Remember, this is a worship issue. It's all about the heart. Where are our hearts? If we are believers in Christ, our hearts have been made new. And if they've been made new, they should be zeroed in on heavenly treasures, not earthly ones. Matthew Henry said, No man is fit for heaven when he dies who does not have heaven in his heart when he lives. In other words, one of the evidences that we are truly saved that we truly belong to the kingdom of heaven, that we're truly kingdom citizens, that we truly belong to King Jesus, is whether or not we are seeking earthly treasures or heavenly ones. The way we handle our money is evidence of who our king is, who we are enslaved to. We're either enslaved to God, which is good and satisfying, for it's what we were created to do. We were created to belong to God. Or we're enslaved to money. Mammon is the word here that's used It's actually a common word used to refer to money, but here it is personified as a deity. There is no middle ground. Either we will hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one or despise the other. If you try to serve master money, you will be despising and hating God. Let me say that again. If you try to serve master money, you will be despising and hating God. That's what 1 John 2.15 we read earlier was all about. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And James says it this way. James 4.4 4, You adulterous people. He's speaking to believers here, friends. James, the apostles weren't all that worried about political correctness. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If you're a believer here this morning, I urge you not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the way you handle your money. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God and ask God to give you more grace that he might stir up a spirit of lavish, risk-taking generosity in you. If you are a believer, then, then we, all, and we all should do this. We should repent of our sin of materialism and praise God for his mercy that he shows us despite the virus of materialism that still flows through our veins. Don't flatter yourself, friends. You cannot make love of money and love of Christ reconcile. You can't. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, 
at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So if you're a Christian, truly a Christian, then you need to act like it with your material wealth. Let me conclude with some thoughts, first of all, for believers in this room. And like I said, this is no light matter, and I want us all to examine ourselves. Love of money presents itself in all of us in different ways and in some interesting ways. For example, do you struggle with always comparing yourself to other people or comparing what you have to what other people have? How about this? Do you hate rich people? Do you hate rich people? Oh, you know, you just, when you hear about someone that's rich and has lots of money, you just gets under your skin. They don't deserve all that money. Or you begin to try to peer into the only place that God can peer into their heart, and you assume that they're using their riches in a way that's not God-glorifying, and you're playing God. You know what the problem is? It's your love of money. It's your love of money. Or maybe you despise poor people, assuming they're just lazy and they don't deserve any help. Or maybe you're more excited about a word from Apple this week about the new iPhone than you are a word from God. Everyone wants pins and needles waiting to hear a word from Apple. How many Christians were waiting for that word from Apple while never picking up this book to hear a word from God? Do you have to have the latest, newest, best? How about this? If we justify not giving to the church body, which is God's ordained means from, second, from that Second Corinthians passage, we see that the church, the local body, is the means God uses for ministering to this lost world and to meeting the needs of the poor. So we justify not giving to the church body. Oh, I'm using, my, I'm using my, my money for kingdom purposes. I went and bought coffee with the pastor, so, you know, I'm just going to use some of my tithe for that. It's king, kingdom purposes, right? We, have a, we may have a love of money problem. How about this test? Ask your kids tonight at the dinner table, and specifically speaking to the fathers here. Say, kids, what is daddy most passionate about? What would they say? Oh, believer, don't you see? We are so tempted to store up earthly treasures. And when we do, they will actually be a witness against us on the day of judgment. Do you know that? Your earthly treasures that were not given over to the Lord and used for his purposes, according to James 5.1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. And since we are all in the t- top 10% of earners in the world, we are all rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Oh, church, we need to repent. We need to repent. To the unbeliever in this room, all I can do is urge you to repent as well. You do not have a heart that desires to serve Jesus as master and Lord. Your heart is turned in on yourself. Even your generosity, if you've had any generosity, has been for your glory and not God's. I beg you to repent for on that day when you draw your last breath, you will not desire more money. 
You will not need a bigger house. You will not yearn for the latest iPhone. It will all be gone. And you, like your treasure, unless you repent, will be burned up. For your heart is with your treasure. So I ask you to repent and call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Seek him now as your only treasure and you will be saved. You will be brought into a heavenly inheritance, treasure in heaven. Materialism, it is a sickness in all human beings. It is deadlier than Ebola. It's caught at birth. It requires a heart transplant to deal with it. But even then, its deadly after effects linger. And so, friends, let us fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in doing so, our eyes will become good eyes, which will cause our hands to loosen their grip on earthly treasures. And radical, lavish generosity toward God by meeting the needs of others will flow out of this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and to one degree or another, this passage has been like a knife in all of our hearts. For some of us, it's cut much deeper. For some of us, it may only feel like a surface wound. But all of us need this word. All of us need to be cut to the heart. Oh God, convict us of our sin. May we all go home today and ask ourselves, how am I using what you've blessed me with? Oh Father, help us to see that all of it came from you. None of it can we take credit for. Father, I believe in this day and age, we're not in an agricultural time, at least most of us in here. And so it's hard for us to to appreciate that everything comes from you. The farmer has to have rain. And so his crop is bountiful. He, he has to give credit outside of himself. But most of us in here don't live like that. We go to work for eight hours, we get a paycheck, and we think we're something. When in reality, we're nothing. And that paycheck was a gift we did not deserve. So, Father, move in our hearts. Make us the people you want us to be. Let Harbin's be a fountain of generosity. And, Father, I praise you. There, there are many generous people in this church. And I praise you for that. I praise you for that. But, Father, I pray that would just be the, the, the foretaste, the, the, the first fruits of even greater generosity yet to come as your word takes root in our hearts. So we ask this all in the precious name of our treasure, Jesus Christ. Amen.